This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Well, I know I already sound really young. People always say like, you sound like you're 10 and Lisa's eight. So I thought, well, I'll just go a little higher than my natural voice. So this is me and this is Lisa Simpson. Right. It's not that different. We're pretty, pretty close though. So. <laughs> Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Allison Interviews podcast. So for this season, I really put so much thought into the people I wanted to interview. And one of the things that I had to get done this season was I had to interview somebody from The Simpsons. I was like adamant about it. I'm like, I must interview a cast member from The Simpsons because first of all, I mean, who isn't obsessed with The Simpsons? It is... I think the longest running primetime TV series in television history. And then the fact that it's about an animated family, you know, in an animated town. And I mean, it's just, it's such a cultural staple. And the show has brought so many gifts to so many people's lives, just beyond the fact that it makes you laugh out loud. I am a huge fan of anything that makes us laugh out loud, which I'm sure, I mean, who could disagree with that? That's like a, you know, not a controversial statement, right? <laughs> I mean, who doesn't like to laugh, especially in this day and age? So I was like, yes, I'm like, I will interview a cast member from The Simpsons because they're so brilliantly talented. So I was like over the moon when Yardley Smith agreed to do an interview for my podcast. If you don't know, Yardley Smith has been doing the voice of Lisa Simpson since 1988. I mean, like, that's crazy. So yeah, she is the original and only uh, voice of Lisa Simpson for the past 33 seasons. They're recording season 34 right now, she told me. And hearing her like even go into character and go into the voice during the conversation, it was surreal. And I have to say, she is such a lovely, gracious, sweet, kind, compassionate, fun, amazing human being. Like, just absolutely such an amazing woman. We had a great time. She gave me so many insights into behind the scenes, the writer's room, how they come up with their stories and their jokes, and how the dynamics and the rhythm of The Simpsons work, and the guest stars, and how they work on the show, and and then just her own personal story, which honestly, she was extremely brave and candid and courageous in sharing a lot of things that she really didn't have to share with me. And I was just so incredibly grateful for that. I mean, when somebody, when somebody opens up and really bears their soul to me when, I, when I'm doing an interview with them, it's such an honor to me that they trusted me to not only hear their story, but then obviously share their story with people who are going to watch and listen. You know, it's, it's, it's an honor. So I just want to go over a few things. So Yardley, in addition to being 
an icon as an actress and, and a voice actress and, and her role on The Simpsons. She also has a podcast called Small Town Dicks. It's super, super cool. So it's this podcast that she co-hosts, and it's about these crazy crimes that take place in small town America. And she actually gets to interview the detectives that help to solve these crimes. And what she said that's really cool about it is she said, you know, these are detectives that are really passionate about their job. They don't just look at it as a job. This is their calling. And there are good cops out there. And that was just a really interesting message that she shared. And the the podcast is fascinating. So anywhere you get your podcast, after you listen to this one, of course, (laughs) listen to Small Town Dicks with Yardley Smith. And Yardley also has this hysterical YouTube and Instagram series called Oil and Water, where she does these really quick cooking and food prep tutorials, and her personality just really shines through on that series. So be sure to catch that. And of course, you have to like binge watch The Simpsons if you've missed any seasons, because season 34 is going to be coming out soon. 34. What the fuck? I'm sorry, but like, that is just beyond impressive. I mean, you got to give them their props. I mean, 34 seasons of an animated sitcom. Unbelievable. So, beautiful people, sit back, relax, and listen to this interview with Miss Yardley Smith. Allison, it's such a pleasure. It's a pleasure to meet you, too. It's an honor to meet you. And you know what? It's so funny because my, this is a weird way to start the interview, but my son, during quarantine in 2020, he, well, he's 13 now, but he was 11 or 12 at the time. The way he got through it was by binging The Simpsons from season one, episode one, literally until like season 32 or 33, like every, and he'd come into the kitchen in the morning and be like, I'm on season 11, episode seven. <laughs> wow. That is impressive because we have over 700, well over 700 episodes now. That's commitment. I love that guy. I love that little guy. That is how he spends his quarantine. So I thank you. (laughs) Happy to help. So, okay. So let's start at the beginning because this is just so amazing to me. So when you first got cast as Lisa Simpson, was it 1988 or 1989? And was it for the Tracy Ullman show? Correct. Yes. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. So you get, I'm, I'm assuming you, you had an audition and was it just described as like, you know, it's, it's for the Tracy Ullman show, which is going to be like this little cartoon skit thing in between her, her sketches. Like, how was it pitched to you? Yeah, sort of, much like that. It was all, I didn't have a voiceover agent at the time. And in fact, the casting director <clears throat> who said, who thought I would be right for Lisa Simpson had actually seen me in a tiny little play in a black box theater in Hollywood the year before. And I was playing a girl who sang Elvis Presley songs and wanted to join the army. So not really anything like Lisa Simpson. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, but when they were casting the Simpsons on the Tracy Ullman show a year later, she said, I know who should play Lisa Simpson. So they called up my agent and, and I was, you know, I'm pretty much still an actor who really says, rarely says no to an audition. And, but I, I had zero interest in doing voiceover. You know, I had a very specific plan for world domination and Mm -hmm. voiceover was not a part of it, but 
I remember my agent saying, well, you know, it's James L. Brooks, who, of course, you know, Mary Tyler, Mary Tyler Moore and Bob Newhart show and Taxi and a gazillion other films as well. So I went and they had me read for Bart, but it was, but which is true, but I feel like now it's become this urban legend, like, oh my God, Yardley was almost Bart. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> it sort of overstates the importance of that momentary experiment. It's really only because they have women do the voices of young boys because our voices don't change. Right. So, you know, I was another woman who had a, an unusual voice and they were like, oh, well, why don't you read for the brother? And so I did. And it really lasted mere seconds. And okay. then they said, what about Lisa Simpson? And I said, yeah, sure. Why not? I'm a sister. I, I know about that. But I didn't, having never done voiceover, I really, I, I, I you know, all my fellow actors have a really big bag of tricks. And um, I didn't. So I thought, well, I know I already sound really young. People always say, like, you sound like you're 10 and Lisa's eight. So I thought, well, I'll just go a little higher than my natural voice. So this is me and this is Lisa Simpson. Right. It's not that different. We're pretty, pretty close, though. <laughs> so when, but when you were like when you were a kid and you were like coming of age, did anyone ever remark to you like, well, you have a really unusual voice or like yeah you oh yes your voice yeah and it was not so kind it was like you have a really funny dumb voice you have a really stupid voice you have a really nasally voice and then they would imitate you so right. I think that really contributed to my notion that I didn't I didn't necessarily consider my unusual voice to be such an asset and that it could be the thing I hung my hat on well you showed them <laughs> I, I would say, who has the last laugh now? Right? Who, has the last, who looks the fool now? No. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when, when you were auditioning, did they put all you guys in a room together? Like, what is it? It's Julie Kavner and I, who's the Dan gentleman who plays Bart? Yeah. yeah, Dan Castellaneta plays Homer. Nancy plays Bart. Mm-hmm. I'm Lisa. And then Maggie doesn't really talk. And, and Nancy and I, over the years, have traded off doing Maggie's sounds, Okay. Now Matt Matt did the original sucking of the pacifier sound. Really? He's really good at it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And now Nancy obviously couldn't replicate that, but all her sort of coos and gurgles and stuff now is Nancy. But when I auditioned, it was just me. And I I remember they didn't didn't have to see like what the chemistry was, but between the voices? No, or? You know, I honestly think it was really kind of this slapdash idea where James L. Brooks thought, oh, you know, what would be really cool is to have little, these little cartoon, what we called interstitials before the commercial break. So we would tell a whole story in, a, in like a minute and 20 seconds. So with one of the first ones, for instance, was where Bart and Lisa and Maggie are all being put to bed mm-hmm. and Marge is singing Rockabye Baby to them, which is when you break it down like that is a horrible, horrible lullaby, like horrible things. Yes. The breaks, the baby falls. Like, yes. How are you going to put your child to sleep to that? So that was one of the first ones we did, I remember. And, but we had a, our, our sound booth 
was mm -hmm. this makeshift space behind the audience bleachers because Tracy performed in front of a live audience. It was a sketch comedy show, sort of like Saturday Night Live, right? But not on late at night. So, so they made this booth, wasn't really soundproof at all. We would come in after Tracy and the rest of the cast had had their daily rehearsal to mm -hmm. record our part. But Tracy would stay behind and do music rehearsals. And she has an incredible voice. She's got a huge belting voice. And so hilariously, we would be recording and she would be having music practice and we could hear everything. So we have to wait because the sound booth was really not soundproof. Wow. And I just don't think, I think obviously the main focus was on the main television show and sure. that this was this wild experiment. And so there was no need to do anything like chemistry reads or anything like that or life, you know, whatever, it'll be fine. Well, so, I think what's um, so cool is, so it's, it's the Fox network, yes. which was like, an I mean, I remember when I was a kid, like that was the network that had all the crazy, wacky, experimental television programming where they were just taking all these risks that the main three or the big three networks would not be willing to take at all. And I think that's what's so beautiful about it, that they even said, OK, now we're going to spin this off into its own show, The Simpsons, and give you guys a primetime slot. I mean, did you think it was going to go? Did you think it would go past the first season at all? Um, well, we were what we call a mid-season replacement for your listeners mm -hmm. who don't know. So we actually the very first half hour episode that aired was Christmas 1989, 1989 <clears throat> where in 1989, where we get Santa's Little Helper. It's a Chris, the Christmas episode, Simpsons Roasting on an Open Fire. And uh, then we had 12 episodes after that for the mid-season replacement starting in January. And, and I remember the sort of the, because show business is, <laughs> I would say, so not for the faint of heart. The yes. uh, not-so-quiet scuttlebutt behind the scenes was, Fox is crazy. This will never last. Nobody has mm -hmm. put a cartoon on in primetime since the, since the Flintstones. Although I was, I did a podcast recently and somebody corrected me about that, but perhaps the most well-known recent at that time, primetime cartoon was the Flintstones. Okay. And they were like, you're out of your minds. But, and they handed James L. Brooks, who said, we will only go to half hour if we get no studio or network notes. And the episodes can be scored by a live orchestra. So every show on television or in film always has a score, right? To sort of mm -hmm. sometimes inform how you should feel about a scene or an interaction or tee you up for something suspenseful. And there are any number of ways to do that. And a full pre a 40 piece orchestra is of course the most expensive. And Fox said, yeah, sure. Partly because I think it's James L. Brooks and he had such a massive track record. He'd already won Oscars and multiple Emmys and like, you can have whatever you want. And right. the PS is this show isn't going to last past 13 episodes. So <laughs> you have a good time. And then, of course, it hits so big, so, so, yeah. so, so big. So meanwhile, those tenants have remained. We still are scored by a 40-piece orchestra, and we wow. still don't get any studio or network notes. So, you know, as an actor, you're just happy a, a show goes past five seasons because that's the magic number where sure. you have now accrued 100 episodes. 100 episodes means you're going to get residuals for all the reruns that they run. That's like, right. if you can't get a hundred, you're not going to be syndicated. 
And you've so, gotten that times seven. Yes. Yes, we have. We're now in the process of recording season 34, which is just bananas and such a gift. I yeah. literally pinch myself every day. Uh, I could show you the bruises. Um, <laughs> it's really, I just, you know, you do, I, I believe things happen for a reason. You know, I've listened to your podcast and I, I join your curiosity and what happens to us after we die and do we really? have a purpose? Yeah. And do okay. we have a, is there a reason for us to be here? And I so then do. You, then, you won't, then you won't flip out when I ask those questions. Cause some people are like, <laughs> like they panic when I ask those questions. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm ready for you. I'm ready. I'm ready for it. I'm here for it. Okay, cool. So, okay. So what I've always loved about the Simpsons is that the characters kind of give the audience permission to not always be politically correct, to not always be polite, right? It's, uh, you know, it's sort of like, especially I think the Homer character is sort of gives everybody permission to just be, to kind of say and think, you know, and embrace everything that they want to be without any guilt. And then the characters around Homer, like Lisa, is kind of the moral compass of the show, of the family. And it almost reminds me of the, the model of All in the Family. So you had Archie, who was just like a bull in a china shop, and then you had all these other characters kind of like reining him in. So what are your thoughts on that? I think, uh, you know, back in the 90s, George H.W. Bush famously said that we need more families like the Waltons and a great many less like the Simpsons. Okay. And, uh, and, and because of that, because Bart would talk back to his father and because we were so openly flawed. And I, and I always feel like the thing that H.W. missed about the Simpsons and if he had truly been a fan was that they genuinely love each other and that you there is no first of all perfection the pursuit of perfection is a zero-sum game nothing will make you less happy than the pursuit of perfection I speak from experience Mm -hmm. and so the notion that appearances should are more valuable and somehow help society function better, I think is not true. I think that kindness always rules the day, but can't you be yourself and also have empathy and respect for others? So you can still speak your mind, but you don't have to tear somebody down. You can just say, this is why that doesn't work for me, or here's why I don't agree with you, or here's my perspective, right? So you know, we exaggerated on The Simpsons because that's part of what television does and we of are course. a cartoon. Yeah. And for Lisa, you know, I love Lisa Simpson so much. I love her like she is a red-blooded, living, breathing, three-dimensional little girl. I love her. And it has been such a privilege to be a part of her creation, to be the vocal part and sort of the, the heart and the soul, at least to interpret the words that are given to me on the page and be able to infuse them with my own experience and my heart and my soul. And, and I feel like 
Lisa Simpson is also deeply flawed, but what's great about her, what I really aspire to and, and try to learn from her every time is that at the end of every episode, when she's gone through the personally often painful journey, because that's the storylines they always give to Lisa Simpson, sometimes yeah. to Bart, and they're magic. They're always magic. You know, I think as human beings, we long for personal stories that reflect our own experiences. Absolutely. So to see Lisa Simpson come out the other side and kind of go hit the reset button in a way where she's moved the needle a little bit, but most importantly, she doesn't plummet into this shame spiral. She Mm -hmm. like takes stock of what she learned and, and sort of goes, okay, well, I'm okay. You know, I I'm, I'm okay. And I, just because things didn't go the way I planned doesn't mean that I have to somehow pay the, the price for that forever and ever. They just didn't go as planned. So what did I learn from that? And where can I take that knowledge and, and what's next? I just love that about her. She has how, a resilience how, how much, that. Yeah, she's a resilient little creature. I was just going to yeah. say that. How much creative input, if any, have you had o- over the years with her? Um, it's funny, you know, we don't, I once went a few years ago, I went to visit their writer's room just to see, because I admire them so much. And there's mm-hmm. always two writer's rooms going at once. <clears throat> and so I went to, I asked, can I come and sit in? And they were like, yes, of course. So I went and sat down and I could hear before I got into the room, the door was closed. I could hear laughter and lots of conversation. And yeah. I walked in and everything just went, and they all just went. They kind of closed like, up. Yeah. Yes. And I thought, no, 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 I, no, I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to admire you. I just want to see how you do your thing. So yeah. I, I sat there for about 10 minutes, clearly not going to work. And so mm-hmm. I respectfully excused myself. So the, the, the only thing I will say is that the writers themselves have said that they work out all of their own childhood angst through Lisa Simpson. Interesting. They, it's so interesting because most of them are men. Hmm. We now have many, several more female writers on staff, but for years, for the first 20 plus years, we had one female writer. By and Get large. out. Yeah. What, was it just coincidence? Like just kind oh, of I don't way think it, so. Really? <laughs> okay. So... <laughs> I think um, what, what was the what was the fear? What was the, uh, the the reservation? Do you think? You know, I think I don't know. To be honest, my speculation is that in a job like that, and certainly in Hollywood, it's it's well known that you get a lot of jobs through your connections. So if there was a writer who was really good and valuable to the show, you're like, oh hey, yeah, I know a dude, and he works on this show, or he just came off of Letterman or he came off of SNL, you know, they would kind of pull from many of the same pools that the original writing staff had been formed from. And so I, 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 I mean, we laugh, I think in some ways it was intentional, but I'm happy now at least that they've made a really concerted effort Mm -hmm. to get some fantastic female writers and it makes a difference. I mean, 
it makes a difference to have writers from different cultures. It makes a difference because you get just a totally different worldview. So that being said, even when it was mostly men, they, I believe, were always the smartest guy in the room when they were growing up, which Mm-hmm. When you're a kid, no matter if you do something well, whether it's math or sports or science, acting, whatever it is, it sets you apart from your peer group. Now you're different. And there's a certain kind of social navigation that goes along with that blessed burden. And so well, that, I, that's, what's, that's what's so interesting about the show is that it takes a lot of intelligent people to write characters that can sometimes come off as unconscious. Do you know what I mean? That, that's, that's well the, said. That's the interesting part. Yeah, a very interesting part about it. What are, what are your thoughts or what, I should say, what were your thoughts when you and the rest of the cast came to the realization that, oh, these characters are never going to age. They're going to be forever the ages that they started at. I, 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 it was so smart. I knew right then, like, this is genius because one of the problems always, or one of the conundrums when you're dealing with actual real children on a live action show is they grow up. Yeah. So is the audience willing to grow up with them? Are they willing to make that transition through whatever those awkward stages are, depending on how young you got those kids? So for the Simpsons to be frozen in time, I always say that I feel like it's part of the success of the show is that Mm -hmm. we remain frozen in time and it gives us this really solid platform, this kind of constant from which to comment on everything that's going on in the world and current events. So it it remains that I, I was liken it to whenever I travel, I would always, if I was in a hotel room in a place that I was unfamiliar with a city I'd never been to, I would find law and order on TV because you're like, Oh, you know, cause you know exactly how it's going to go. Yeah. Dun, dun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know the formula. I know we're yeah. going to get the bad guy and there's mm-hmm. great comfort in that. And so I think sure. that the Simpsons never aging provides a similar kind of familiarity that makes the show really successful. 100%. I, I remember thinking like that was a, a brilliant and bold move. And it was a very successful chess move because that way <laughs> the kids are not going to age out. The parents are not going to age out. And, and it's so true. It's frozen in time. So I watched it and then my son watched it and we both had the same experience. Yes. So, we are so multi-generational now. We yeah. literally have writers on staff who grew up watching the show who thought, oh my God, wouldn't it be great to work on a show like The Simpsons? I mean, The Simpsons won't still be on and we're like, yes, we will. Yes, we will. <laughs> and so you can come right on our show and then your kids can watch the show. It's, it's pretty extraordinary. Amazing. And I didn't actually think I was going to ask this because this was a, a very recent turn of events. But mm. when I was preparing this morning, I got this thought that came into my head where all of a sudden I felt, wait a second, wasn't Ray Liotta on The Simpsons? Because I was like, I was so devastated to hear about his passing yesterday. And then I don't know why the thought came into my head this morning. I'm like, Ray Liotta was on The Simpsons. And I I started Googling it. And then I saw that he played Moe's father, Morty. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. uh, We've had so many incredible guests on this. The 
sort of the downside of technology is that now that it's so good, you can actually be anywhere in the world where there's electricity and a pretty quiet room and we can pick you up and you don't have to be in the room with us. And yeah. so for big stars like Ray Liotta and, you know, Meryl Streep, although Meryl, Meryl Streep actually happened to be in town, although I did not get to record with her. But it, my point being that there are so many stars who have been on The Simpsons and most of them, we actors don't get to meet. The producers oh. get to meet them. It's so unfair. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm with you. I was absolutely, I was so deeply saddened. He's so young. And he was such a great actor. I really always enjoyed his work. Yeah, incredible actor. From what I understand, really sensitive and and kind guy. And um, yeah, so I didn't know. Yeah, that's true. That's one of the downsides. If it was live action, then you would have uh, perhaps spent some time with him. But, uh, But did you ever see those episodes at all? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I actually still watch the show. Okay. Yeah. So what did you, did you happen to see his performance as, I guess it's, it was Morty. It was Moe's dad. Moe's dad. And um, I always listen for when we have big celebrities, I'm always impressed when a celebrity can fit into the world. You know, the Simpsons, we have a very specific sound. There's a subtle rhythm to the way Mm -hmm. conversations are held by the characters in the show and some even phenomenal actors are, they can't, it's really quite funny. It's, it's quite sweet, really, if they do come and record with us. And, you know, they've won Oscars and maybe they've won Tonys and Emmys and you name it. And they get to us and they're like, uh, <laughs> what do I do? And you're like, you do yeah. what you do. And sometimes you, the celebrity really sticks out like a sore thumb. You can go, oh, Mm -hmm. that's, that's, they're not really part of Springfield, but it's fun to hear them anyway. But Ray Liotta, absolutely seamless, seamless in the way that, for instance, Joe Montaigne plays Fat Tony, absolutely Mm -hmm. seamless. Meryl Streep was seamless. Dustin Hoffman was seamless. Um, Ricky Gervais, seamless. Like it's just really, really fun when it works. It's really who fun. Your favorite, like big celebrity who came to Springfield of all time. Is there a favorite? Well, I have to say it was pretty amazing to meet Lady Gaga. Okay. That was pretty did you extraordinary. Record, did you record with her? Yes. Oh, you yes. did? Okay. Yes. She came to the studio. I got to stand next to her. It was a like that just was amazing like amazing and she was so game she was so willing like we do every scene four times and Mm -hmm. then if we still if the if the writer producer still doesn't have exactly what what they want we'll then pick up lines individually to complete that scene and move on to the next so it's it can feel tedious I think if that's not your process if you're not used to that but certainly for, for a celebrity, for instance, we do it as act of the regular actors, we do a ton of ADR, which means for your listeners, like if we, they do a rewrite over the course of the eight to nine months of animation for one show, there are multiple rewrites. Mm-hmm. I will come in and redo a line because the original didn't quite hit the way they wanted to or whatever the case may be. So I do a lot of that. 
But if you're Lady Gaga and your schedule is packed from noon to night for the next three years, we're probably not going to get you to come. We're not going to have an opportunity for you to come and do ADR. So we really, really need those four different takes. And she was so gracious and kind and humble and beautiful. Um, I just so enjoyed that. That was amazing. I also, very early on in the series season two, I believe it was, was flown to New York to record with Dustin Hoffman who played Lisa Simpson's substitute teacher. It's a great episode. One of always one of my, uh, just sort of a running list of top 10 of favorites. Uh, it always makes it, it's called Lisa's substitute and he's brilliant in it. And that was a, a really one of the best days of my acting career. It was so, so deep. It was so meaningful. He was It was just extraordinary. It was kind of like, is this happening? Am I really here? It was great. Well, you know, what's funny is that all of those people were probably thinking, is this happening? Am I really here? (laughs) (laughs) You're so sweet. I hope so. (laughs) I sure hope so. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. What, how do you think, or what do you think about the way the Simpsons handles politics, social issues, and perhaps some, some, even some heavier social and political issues? You know, my, I feel like on our show, we take no prisoners. Mm -hmm. So in many ways, nobody is safe. And I know personally that their politics are, for the most part, you know, I guess what would we would be what would be considered democratic, right? Like, right. listen, live and be well. Let can everybody have the same human rights, the same basic rights? Can we all just, you know, get along and and try to respect each other and have empathy for our different experiences? And so, when we do commentary on current events or something political, and there's there's always satire. We will take it certainly to the edge, partly because, again, we're a cartoon. That's part of what is afforded to you, I think, mm-hmm. because we're bright yellow and we have four fingers and, you know, a, this massive overbite every character had. Like, we're, we're no lookers, I can tell you that. <laughs> we're not a beautiful bunch that it kind of affords you a little more to in terms right. of having a more biting commentary. So, I can't say that we always get it right, but I do know that they're right. The writer's hearts are always in the, the right place. I know also because I'm friends with the, with several of them, as with all of us, the, the news of the world, certainly in the last several years, weighs heavily on them. And it can mm-hmm. be really difficult to have to write comedy to do to write a show in some ways it just sort of marches on without necessarily 
a nod to what's happening, like what happened this week with the school shooting and the grocery shooting, what happened, you know, the war in Ukraine. It's how, is it okay to still write comedy? Does that feel morally irresponsible? And I think you could look at it both ways that in order for us to be able to cope with this extraordinarily heavy time in our country's history, you Mm -hmm. need things to also lighten the load. Like I do a cooking show on Instagram and YouTube called Oil and Water Stupid Good. And I cook a whole recipe in like six minutes. And it's mostly, it's not, I do take actual recipes. So if you look those recipes up, you could cook from them too, but it's not a cooking show sort of like Giada De Laurentiis does. But really, I started it in the pandemic because for me, there was value in having dumb entertainment for troubling times. Like there has to be a way, right, to offload that kind of anxiety and stress that feels constant. Yeah. And by the way, I watched a couple of episodes of uh, of the cooking (laughs) show. Yeah, I... So it's Oil and Water with Yardley Smith, and it's on YouTube and then your Instagram as well? It's it's actually on Oil and Water Food on Instagram. Okay. It okay. has its own channel. And then, so Oil and Water originally started out as a game where I would take two ingredients that would never go together right. and make them into a third thing that I would draw randomly from a, a bowl. And then I just got tired of putting sardines in my ice cream. So I was like, <laughs> you know what? I'm actually a pretty good cook. Let me start cooking from all these amazing, mostly internet chefs who are home chefs, who are, who have their own food blogs, who are making incredible food in their kitchens. I'm like, I want to eat that stuff. Let's make it and see if it's not only good, but stupid good. Yeah. And, and you're so like, to me, the main draw was your personality. Your personality really shines. Thank you. That is sort of, as I say, if you're going to try to cook an entire dish in six and a half minutes, you're probably not going to get a lot of instruction. Although I will, I always go over the hard things and listen, I've had some failures, but I always feel like (laughs) there's a way to basic to, as the saying goes, make lemonade out of lemon. So (laughs) absolutely. So what's like the craziest or, you know, recipe that, that you've tackled so far? or unlikeliest recipe. Yeah. On oil and water, it was a Halloween themed episode where we had predetermined that the thing, so you get a sweet, savory thing, right? So pull from a bowl of sweet ingredients, bowl Mm -hmm. of savory ingredients, bowl of things like it's a pie, it's an ice cream, it's a soup, it's a casserole, blah, blah, blah. We had predetermined that the thing was going to be a candy apple because it's Halloween. That was the only thing we knew. From the bowl of sweet, I drew uh, Skittles because it had to be all Halloween candy. And mm-hmm. from the bowl of salmon, of savory, I drew salmon roe because all of the ingredients were orange colored. Okay. Allison, when I tell you it was the most disgusting thing I have ever eaten in my life, because of course you have to taste it. That's part right. of the game. Of course. Oh my God. Oh, it was so bad. We had to set it on fire, literally oh. set it on fire. <laughs> it was horrific. So yeah, that was the worst I did. And then on stupid good, I mean, I recently made a Swiss roll, 
mm-hmm. which is basically, you know, chocolate cake rolled up with usually a cream filling. It's very reminiscent of a ho-ho or a which little Debbie, yeah. depending on same, which, which wherever part of the country you grew up in. Yeah. And uh, absolute visual disaster. Oh my God. It could not have been worse. However, it was damn tasty. And so I decided, all right, well, I'm not going to throw out these delicious now shards of chocolate cake and this beautiful softly whipped cream that's vanilla flavored. I'm going to put it in a martini glass and make a parfait. Nobody would be the wiser. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. That reminds me like I made a, uh, I, I watched on YouTube one time, this girl her name is Jessica Kent. She made a prison cake. She's like, she did time in prison. And she's like, this is how we made, what was it? Like a fu- like a fudge cake in prison. And you take all these ingredients that you could get from the prison commentary and it, you chop up the Oreos and you take like coffee creamer and peanut butter and you make the topping and you throw some, some M&Ms on top of it. I mean, it looked disgusting, but when I tell you how freaking good it was, I mean, I was like... <laughs> That is fantastic. Oh my God. What's her name? Jessica Kent? Jessica Kent. And if you Love look that. up how to make, I don't know what it was, a, pr- a prison prison cake, just, okay. just a yeah. prison cake. I mean, how many entries for that could there be? So uh, Right. <laughs> I love that. I mean, and the point is, and what I love what you just described and sort of what I was trying to get across in in my repurposing my failed Swiss roll was Mm -hmm. recipes should be a template, right? If you are making something and then at the bottom of a good recipe, it'll always say adjust to taste. So that means you like a little, you want it to be a little more tart, add some, you know, acid Mm -hmm. to it, like lime or lemon or a little sweeter or less sweet or you want a little more peanut butter or whatever it is the recipe is just a guide and while baking is actually science and there are some things that you kind of have to do in a certain order at the end of the day if you're frosting a cake and you want it to have more vanilla add more vanilla there is you know no hard and fast rule but I think people who don't cook a lot feel like oh god oh god I have to follow the recipe to the letter that's mm-hmm. not true. Not true. You do you. That's the best way. And by the way, that advice applies to life. Yes, it does. That is great advice. So before we get to like some of the spiritual stuff, I want to ask you about Small Town Dicks, which yes. is your podcast that you co-host. Have you always been a true crime buff? Yes. Yes. I really, I grew up always wanting the good guys to win and Mm -hmm. you know I feel like it's so important that we're having this really worthy and and hopefully productive conversation about how policing can improve in America I think sitting next to that is absolutely a space for here's also some these cases that are being solved by cops who are really doing the job the right way who Mm -hmm. care deeply, who consider policing to be a calling and not just a job, who don't believe that the person who committed the crime is, for the most part, is a bad person. They just made a bunch of bad decisions, right? So Small Town Dicks, I co-host with identical twin detectives, Dan and Dave. And Mm -hmm. um, 
all of the stories are told by the detectives who investigated the case. So I, my role in the whole, in the trio is I'm you. So if you had the privilege to sit at that table and ask any question you wanted, no question is off limits, then that's what I aim to do. Also clarifying things, you know, there's a heck of a lot of acronyms in policing. So I'm like, yeah, that it was, what's that? The what, the what? But I also, as you know, I think you would resonate with this. I want to know how you solve the case. I, but then I also want to know where does that kind of work live inside of you? If, you, if basically your whole job is by and large encountering somebody on their worst day, Mm-hmm. And you're supposed to help make that better or de-escalate the situation or make sure the public is safe or, and the list goes on and on. What, where does it go when you then have to go home and be a husband, a father, a mother, a wife, a sister? Like, how does it live inside you? Because that amount of stress mm-hmm. on a daily basis is just not normal. So how do you cope with it? And really the answer we get 99% of the time is, well, you know, you get pretty good at putting it away in a box. You just sort of lock it away. It has its own spot. And then a few minutes later, they'll tell you the trouble is the lock on the box isn't that good. And so there's ultimately a toll for everything that you refuse to deal with, which again goes back to life in general like if you have a tremendous loss and you bottle up that grief and that anger and the anxiety and the confusion whatever that cascade of emotions is that bottle is not going to stay sealed forever it's just not it's going to bleed out and you're going to perhaps get poor health it'll affect your relationships it'll affect Mm -hmm. your desire to get out of bed I mean I'm sure you know all this. It's, you know, the list goes on. So well, I, I'm always I, fascinated I, by that. I think that, well, I've come up with a theory and it is kind of a gender-based theory, although um, yes, there are exceptions to the rule that I feel like a man's mind, you know, I'm talking mainly the male way of coping, that a man's mind, it's kind of like a house with multiple floors and there's an attic. And they put all their bad stuff in the attic and they lock the door and they like go and hang out in the living room downstairs. Right. And then then sometimes they'll like peek up into the attic and open the door and and then it kind of hits them like an avalanche. Whereas women, we live in like a big open loft where we experience everything. Like it permeates our whole being. We don't shove it somewhere. You know, we're experiencing all of it, but I almost feel like in a lot of ways, we have the better deal because we, at least if you're more empathic, like you experience it, you feel it, you live it, you process it, and then you don't forget it, but you're able to move forward, like in a healthy, productive way. I totally agree. That's a really fantastic analogy. I love the visuals of it. I would say, I would add to that, that, that they lock the door of the attic, but the thing is there's a little crack at the bottom of the door and that stuff if the longer you wait to open that door it'll start to leak out under the door and then you'll find its way down the stairs it will get you it will get it'll it'll trickle down the (laughs) stairs yeah but it will find you (laughs) 
100%. Yeah, I, I, I think that that paradigm needs to shift a little bit, especially Absolutely. if you're dealing with very stressful or, or work that has a lot of trauma involved in it. Yes, you it's know? remarkable in speaking to these detectives now where we just are about to wrap up season 10. We do two seasons a year, so we're about almost five years old. Mm-hmm. That there isn't a more, there isn't more full-throated support for getting these first responders, whether you're dispatch, which is also a massively high pressure job, firemen, paramedics, police, that there isn't more open support for getting them the mental health care that they could obviously benefit from. You know, there's such a stigma about it, though, that these incredible first responders are really reluctant to reach out and take what probably at least insurance wise is available to them right like yeah yeah no you can do it we have it here but everyone's like no I don't need that no unless absolutely mandated to do so so um that culture I think really needs to change yeah absolutely I I mean I I don't know if if you ever go into this on the podcast but I know that for for a very long time, and I don't know if it still goes on, that police would drown their sorrows in alcohol and drugs. Oh, yeah. You know, because they just didn't know how to push it out of their mind, whether it's seeing a victim, you know, or or like you said, whether it's dealing with people on their absolute worst day. Absolutely. There's a a quite high rate of law enforcement suicide after Mm -hmm. retirement. Um, But you're absolutely right also about the alcohol you know, which leads into failed relationships and a, a kind of a wound tightness that is so heartbreaking. And because they really had their heart and their souls in this incredibly high stress job that they felt was a calling. And now once the job is over, or even if they're still in the middle of it, they're like, they feel like they're left perhaps, or I'm going to say, it seems as though they're left holding a bag without any place mm-hmm. to offload it. And at a certain point, I think you get into diminishing returns and you won't get the best work out of those people because they, you, they're saddled with so much, right? All of this, I, I, in many cases, it would be uh, medically classified as PTSD. So I just feel like It saddens me that they don't feel as though they can take advantage of the resources that might be offered to them because it's so stigmatizing and it's ridiculous. Like, good God. I mean, if you, I just can't even, you know, giving somebody a death notification to tell them that their child is dead, that their loved one is dead to say to, to do CPR on an infant and it doesn't work. Like, are you kidding me? And these are all, these are all stories that you've heard on the podcast when you're speaking to these detectives. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. It's really, really well done. I must say, even if I wasn't a part of it, it's very reverent toward the victims and it's Mm -hmm. very respectful. And also we've done cases about bad cops as well. So while one would certainly consider it a, a pro-police podcast, I feel like it's also really balanced and measured and thoughtful and intelligent. So if you haven't heard it, give it a go. Okay. 
And what is the best advice that you have ever received? Well, I guess two things. The first thing that comes to mind, though, I remember feeling like it was cold comfort at the time. My father, who I was not particularly close to, said, this too shall pass. And I, was, I remember thinking like, really? That's all you got? That's all you got for me right now? As I, and I can't remember what it was, but clearly I was, my heart was broken or I was terribly upset about something. And yeah. that's, that's all he had to offer. It turned out to be true, but uh, at the time it was like, ugh. But the other thing I think, which stuck with me and also is really valuable is be on time. Don't ever consider that your time, no matter where you are in the food chain, is more valuable than somebody else's. And so get it together and be on time. Now, sometimes, of course, the world intervenes, but by and large, make an effort. But have the intention. Yes. And what is something about yourself that continues to be a work in progress? Oh, Allison. Uh, I think I'll go first um, if you want. <laughs> no, you can go first. <laughs> I feel like the list is so long. That's the groan. I will say the thing that I have struggled with all my life, and 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 it's certainly better now, but that there there will be times in my life when I'm under a lot of stress where it will grab me by the throat again, and that is the pursuit of perfection. And I mentioned it early in the conversation that it really perfection, the pursuit of perfection is a zero sum game because you will never achieve it. And therefore you will never feel satisfied with your pursuit or what you actually achieve, like, like Mm -hmm. the thing that you got. And so there, what's that expression? Perfection is the enemy of good. And I remember when I first heard that, I thought, that is bullshit. What are you talking about? Oh my God, that you would settle for good. But what it does, once I was sort of able to really tease it apart and understand it on a deeper level, perfection is the enemy of good, is that there is such a thing as recognizing that you gave the relationship, the work product, the personal pursuit, everything you had, And the result of that is exactly what it needed to be. And for you to stay stuck trying to make it into something that you perceive as perfect is only going to keep you where you are and you won't be allowed to go forward and evolve and move on to something else and continue to grow and learn. And it will foster a misery that is unlike anything else. And so that is a thing that I, I... really struggle with. It really, really shows up in my body image. You know, I had an eating disorder for 24 years. 24 uh, years in recent times and, you know, many uh, years from ago? the time I was 14 till 39. Oh so my I'm, gosh. Yeah, I'm 57 now. I always say, Hey, listen, what? I'm not a quitter. So, <laughs> <laughs> but it was, and still, even though Uh, So I went to an outpatient program at UCLA for 13 months. We met eight hours a week. And essentially it was group therapy Mm -hmm. for people who had eating disorders. It happened to be all women at the time, but that wasn't the mandate. It just happened to be that. And one of the things we had to do was eat a meal together, 
which of course is harrowing if you have an eating disorder. I was, my particular predilection was bulimia. And the other thing we had to do, which was also harrowing, was we had to do something social. Every week you had to make a social commitment because eating disorders are incredibly isolating and you practice your disorder in private. It's very ritualistic. It's very secret. And it's not social like drinking. Not to say that one is worse than the other, just different and different sort of MOs. So um, I remember being 39 and thinking like, okay, and I'd been in therapy many years by then. And I would just lie by omission, depending on how it struck me, how I wanted to report on my eating disorder at the time. And I remember thinking, I don't, I can't turn 40 and still be binging and puking my brains out. I can't, I can't. So I sort of pulled up my socks and said, all right, I need some actual help. I've been telling myself that I can do this on my own forever and ever. And obviously I can't, so I need some help. And that's when I went to that program and I got a bunch of tools. And then it was probably another couple or three years before I really was not afraid of food. Mm-hmm. So now I feel like I the food is actually good. Like I don't have the I'm not afraid of food. There are a couple of trigger foods that I really stay away from. Would you say that the treatment was for the most part effective? Yes, but it's kind of like I, you know, in 12 step programs, there's that saying it works if you work it, I believe some version of that. And so for this kind of for this program, I I was given all these tools, but they're absolutely useless if you don't actually apply them, right? Like anything else. Yeah. Like anything, which is why it took another probably couple, almost three years for me to really kind of normalize my eating to not, you know, that after the program, I could go six weeks, maybe two months without binging and purging. And then I would have a spate of binging and purging. And then I I just get back on track. I just want to understand just because I'm, I'm a little ignorant about, about that. Is it, is it a feeling that you don't deserve to nourish your body? Or is it a feeling that a fear that food will put weight on? Or what is the fear exactly? The the fear is that you do deserve nothing good. Okay. Fear is rooted in a deep shame of who you are, how much you have not lived up to your expectations or other people's, that your body isn't the shape and size that it should be that you see in the magazines that I see in my industry. It is really a punishment. And then it, in this such like this twisted ironic way that by binging and purging, you like, listen to me, I have control over you. When in fact, what you're doing is completely out of control. So it's this false sense of, I can fix this, but there's so much anxiety and pain in feeling like you're never enough and that you're not good enough and you haven't achieved enough and you're unworthy of everything from love to the good things that happen to you, that there's so much grief there that doing this violence to your body is sort of like a drug, right? It distracts you from that, from those feelings that are so hard to sit with because it's literally, there's, there's an actual activity 
in eating all that food and then making yourself vomit. Um, have you found so, have you found a peace? Have you found a feeling of, I guess, self-love or at least self-like at, at this point? Yes. You know what I mean? Yes, yes. You know, and again, it kind of comes in, in fits and starts. I, I admit, I'll read about a celebrity who, you know, used who's super famous and used to not like herself. And then she, I don't know what she did, but now she loves her. I'm like, how the fuck did you get there? Like, what, how, did, how did that happen? I don't know. I've got like, I read so many books. I've done so many things. And it mm-hmm. kind of goes back to your conversation with Randy Spelling, mm-hmm. where he talks about when he was doing drugs and drinking and obviously and all anything and everything that you could do to fill up the inside from the outside. Right. And I did a one woman show off Broadway back in 2006 called more. And the tagline was, you can't fill up the inside from the outside. And it really was 90 minutes of all these ways. I try, I chronicled of, despite my really pretty great success, it felt like it was never enough because I was looking like maybe if I'm famous, I'll feel full. I'll feel worthy. I'll feel beautiful. I'll feel like everything I have, I deserve. Maybe if I have enough money and I can, you know, have a beautiful house, I'll feel content. Maybe right. if I have a husband, blah, 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 list is endless. So I am definitely better, but I really... For any woman out there, so like I said, I'm 57, mm-hmm. and for any woman out there who who feels like I should I should know these things by now, I should feel this this well of self love by now. How come I don't? What's wrong with me? Nothing is wrong with you, and I'm in the same boat, and I have the same questions, right. and I believe that if you didn't get those tools early in life, it's just going to take a little longer and it's going to be a little harder. I I also think that there's say that for me anyway, and I don't think I'm alone, that my parents raised me as well as they could. And then I had to re-raise myself. That's really well said. So, and for me, for whatever it's worth, what I found was getting into spirituality and uncovering the mystery of who we really are at our, at our core, at our essence is what created that feeling of self-love. It it wasn't like, it wasn't just like being a person, you know what I mean? I had to figure out like who I really was because being a person never quite felt like enough. And I always felt like something, it's like, there's a, there's a puzzle piece missing here. Something's not, something's off. And when I realized that we actually are spiritual beings and there's so much more to the picture than what we can experience with our five senses, you know, yes. we, we come here with like a kind of an amnesia because, yes. you know, we're here to grow and expand and, and learn certain things. And I feel like what people consider success on the physical plane is not necessarily so. Not that the the material type of success isn't great and fun and wonderful, but for somebody, success might be that they simply came into this life to learn self-love. And even if they 
never made a fortune, even if people don't know their name, even if they're not physically what society would consider beautiful, if they mastered self-love in that lifetime, then they have, they, their soul achieved what it came here to achieve. They are a massive success. Totally agree. Example, right? Yeah. So, totally agree. Yeah. So that's why success is there's more to, to it than what, than what people realize, you know, even like somebody might've come into this life and, and agreed and said, okay, I'm going to come in, in a state of poverty and I'm going to learn how to take care of myself and become self-sufficient. And even if that means making minimum wage for their soul, they accomplished what they came here to accomplish. Yeah. Right. So you can't really compare yourself to this one, that one, because you don't know why they're here. Right. And there's that expression, compare and despair. Right. Right. To hold yourself up against somebody else's journey or the things that they have and wonder why you're not like that or why you don't have those things is only going to lead to a a kind of misery you don't want to, you don't want to get near. Yeah. And that's why even like with our social media existence now, anytime I catch myself having that thought, I like, I say, stop, wait. Allison, why are you here? It has nothing to do with why they're here. Like, don't, <laughs> you know what I mean? Just refocus and, and I, and it works. It works. Fantastic. It truly, truly does. I'm mm-hmm. going to borrow that. Borrow it, please, by all means. <laughs> and that brings me to, to the question that I know that you're probably waiting for, which is what do you think you came into this life as Yardley Smith to learn? And what do you think you came here to teach? I think I knew you were going to ask this because I've <laughs> listened to your pod. Um, I think, uh, well, I do think a lot of it had to do with, has to do with recognizing the personal and valuing the personal internal victories, right? Mm-hmm. As opposed to the external, the very flashy you know, the Lisa Simpson, I've, I've had the great good fortune to have a good on-camera career, you know, won an Emmy, blah, 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 all that stuff, mm-hmm. I think. But the, the valuing of my heart and soul and what I have to bring to the world by just by being kind and compassionate and generous is, I believe the lesson for it, for that to feel like enough, that mm-hmm. I is a lot of what I'm here to learn. I also, and I feel like if you can get to that place, it leads to a, a quiet kind of leadership that can really help get things done that can motivate. Like I have a, a company that I co-founded with my longtime business partner, Ben Cornwell, and we had this production and development company called Paperclip Limited. And now we have four people that work for us. Then we have a whole separate podcast team, right? We have two editors and and another producer and stuff. So all told, there's probably a dozen people under the Paperclip umbrella. And I never, I I consider myself a reluctant leader. It's never Mm -hmm. the place I ever wanted to I wasn't like, oh, I can't wait to lead a company. I'm like, oh my God, the heavy is the head that wears the crown. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I feel like 
the part of that job that I enjoy and that I, I want to really feel like is valuable is the way that I lead. So with a really collaborative spirit, do you, is there an issue? Let me help you solve it. Don't, I don't want to shut you down, right? Mm -hmm. These things are important. I'm here to make, A, hope, hope that you have a great time working here, but also help you get where you need to go, wherever that may be. I'm in a position to do so. So I really enjoy that, but sometimes I very much feel like that's not enough or maybe that doesn't count or um, I too get caught up in the, you know, you're really not that famous Yardley. And this business is, is happy to reinforce that. So part of my journey, I feel like is to tune all that out and listen to my own voice and value things that I wasn't necessarily brought up to value. And I think if you're aware of the things that you're learning yourself, those are the things that you're most able to teach. And so, yes. right. So I feel like all I can do is lead by example. That's what I think I'm here to teach. And by the way, I, I love how you said, I want an Emmy, blah, blah, blah. That's <laughs> come on now. Like seriously. <laughs> it used to be a doorstop. I used to use it as a doorstop. The fucking thing is heavy and it's dangerous. It's a great doorstop. <laughs> oh Lord. <laughs> Don't piss you off. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, actually, I want to I want to add a little bit something onto that question since you're in a very unique position. What do you think the character of Lisa Simpson has taught people? Uh, millions and millions of people. Yeah, I mean, that little girl so much, so so much. I think, you know, one of the best things about Lisa Simpson is her genuine unbridled optimism. The joke is always they whatever they give to Lisa Simpson at the beginning of an episode, 22 minutes later, they've taken it away, whether it's an award, a friend, a point of view. And yet she never, ever, ever gives up. She pulls up her socks. She finds comfort in her family, usually, which is beautiful if you're lucky enough to have that, if not, mm -hmm. you know, a close friend or something. So she, she, I was once asked by a therapist, how do you soothe yourself? And, or how did you soothe yourself as a child mm -hmm. when you were upset? And I couldn't answer the question. I hmm. couldn't remember. I couldn't point to one thing. And I feel like Lisa Simpson is really brilliant at being able to soothe herself with simple things that is usually, you know, have making up with whoever the, the uh, if, if there was a source of anxiety with another character outside of her family, she kind of comes to a truce with it. Like Nelson, when there's that great episode where Lisa and Nelson get together, they mm -hmm. realize they're not going to be a good couple, but you know what? They could actually still be really good friends. Um, <laughs> yeah. Sideshow Bob, who is everybody's nemesis. She recognizes the genius in him. They become friends, but he can't sustain it. She's like, you know what? I still really enjoyed our time together. So Lisa, Simpson, Lisa Simpson's optimism and resilience, I think is something that we can all learn from just by, again, by example, like she 
doesn't dwell on the things that didn't work. I think she Mm -hmm. learns from them, but she doesn't sort of pack them in like, oh my God, this is my penance. She just like, okay, all right, I get it. All right, moving on. What's next? I love her. Love her. Love that. Love that. So when does season 34 of The Simpsons come out? It will come out in September. So we're, we start recording in March because it takes so long to animate one episode. So we're like six episodes in, but yeah, you know, like we're still on the old school television schedule where shows start in September and they end in May, sort of like the school year. (laughs) We're one of the last holdovers. So yeah. (laughs) And you only get to see one a week, right? No, no binging. Yeah. No binging, unless you want to watch old episodes. And then if you go to Disney Plus, because Disney bought The Simpsons about okay. three years ago, there's a Simpsons tile, like we have our own tile. And they've done this beautiful job of curating them into um, categories. Like you can watch all the Treehouse of Horror Halloween episodes. You can watch, you know, all the Lisa Homer episodes. You can watch. It's great. Oh, I love done that. A, yes, yes, yes. Oh, kind God. of like okay. a little filing, filing cabinet for episodes. Love it. Yeah. Love it. And okay. So small town dicks, your podcast, the true crime podcast that's available wherever people listen to Absolutely. your podcast, wherever okay. you Google play, Amazon, iTunes, Spotify. And also I will say just to promote our Patreon page. So if you go to small town dicks or if you go to patreon.com small town dicks podcast, so $5 a month and we curate special content every week and we just started a new limited series there in January called the briefing room where Mm -hmm. Dan and Dave talk about current events about some of the case law that law enforcement has to abide by in order to do their job absolutely fascinating so informative it is Dave gives his because Dave investigated sex crimes and child abuse when he was a detective yeah uh, gives his presentation on how kids need to stay safe online, the kinds of grooming techniques to look out for. It's really, really well done. Wow. Interesting. I was a criminal justice major. I'm like rubbing my hands together here. Yeah. That is so interesting. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. They were the only classes I didn't skip. I didn't cut. (laughs) True. True story. Uh, okay and oil and water with yardley smith so that is you can find that on youtube and what's the handle for the instagram again it's oil and water food uh on on instagram and youtube i believe but if you yeah my my mug will pop up my face will pop up with all kinds of tiles and episodes and i think you'll really enjoy it it's a great little break from you know what most of us are dealing with on the day-to-day so yeah for sure yeah you're you're honestly like your personality I don't know what it's doing for you but it it cheers me up I mean I love you thank you (laughs) and I just want to say thank you because you were even more more open and giving than I could have even expected and I and I truly appreciate and honor your story and I, I really thank you for taking the time Thank you, Allison. I'm grateful to be given the opportunity to sit down with you. I really never take these kinds of conversations for granted. And so I'm deeply grateful as well. Oh, thank you, Yarley. 
Hey guys, so what did you think? Were you not floored by Yardley's candor and just her emotional accessibility and just what a sweet, amazing, like I just want to hug her and like pinch her cheeks. She's just so awesome. <laughs> I had the best time with her. We, I mean, I, I now kind of like consider her a friend. I mean, she's just, just such a sweet woman. My God. And I am so happy for her success. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. So yeah, I hope you enjoyed the interview with Yardley Smith and look forward to season 34 of The Simpsons, which will be coming out probably later this year. If you liked this episode, please subscribe if you're watching it on YouTube. If you are catching it on Apple Podcasts, please leave me a review. Please subscribe to the podcast if you're listening to it on Spotify. Same thing. And I will catch you on the next go-around. Peace, guys. Peace, guys.